All right, good evening once again, everyone. The eyes of the Shroud of Turin world are focused on Shreveport, Louisiana this weekend and the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's, so we're so glad that you're here to share that with us. My name's Rick Urbanowski. I am the chairman of the Parish Pastoral Council here at the Cathedral, and I wanted to take the opportunity, of course, to introduce our panel. Uh, we will go ahead and start. We'll do the locals last. So just to the left of Father Peter is Russ Brialt. Russ has been researching and lecturing on the Shroud of Turin for over 30 years. He has presented to hundreds of audiences around the world and has appeared in several nationally tele uh, televised documentaries, including Mysteries of the Ancient World on CBS. Most recently, he appeared in the highly acclaimed Uncovering the Face of Jesus, a two-hour documentary on the History Channel. He was both advisor and a primary expert for this groundbreaking program. He was a primary expert for EWTN's documentary, The Holy Winding Sheet. Russ is the founder of the Shroud of Turin Education Project Incorporated, the mission of which is to advance the knowledge of the Shroud to a new generation. Let us welcome Russ. Just to the left of Dr. Cheryl, we have Barry Schwartz. Barry was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project in 1978. Today he plays an influential role in Shroud research and education as the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, which of course is shroud.com. It's the oldest and most extensive Shroud resource on the internet with more than 15 million visitors from over 160 countries. In 2009, he founded the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association Incorporated with the acronym STIRA Incorporated, which is a nonprofit 501c3 corporation to which he has donated the website and his extensive Shroud photographic collection, as well as many other important Shroud resources in order to preserve and maintain these materials and make them available for future research and study. Let us welcome Barry. Welcome back. Thank you, thank you. Then to Barry's left, we have Dr. John Jackson. John. Dr. Jackson is a PhD in physics. In addition to conducting shroud research, he has taught at the university level for many years. Together with his wife, Rebecca, Dr. Jackson runs the Turin Shroud Center of Colorado. In 1978, when interest in the shroud was at its height, Dr. Jackson led a 40-person team of international scientists to Turin where they, under the auspices of the Trout of Turin Research Project, the acronym we like to use is STIRP, they examined the shroud for nearly a week. No one since that time has secured such full scientific research access to the cloth. And because of that, significant amounts of different scientific data were extracted. Dr. Jackson became the primary custodian of this data and, along with his scientific colleagues in Colorado, he has continued the thrust of Shroud research. Dr. Jackson serves as the director of the Turin Shroud Center of Colorado and with his wife, Rebecca, is the founding member of the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud. Welcome, Dr. Jackson. And of course, to Dr. Jackson's left, we have Rebecca Jackson. Rebecca holds an MBA in global management, and she serves as the associate director of the Turin Shroud Center of Colorado. She's a longtime convert to Christianity from Orthodox Judaism. 
She runs the exhibit pre presentation center at the Turin Shroud Center, and she also conducts her own research into the first century Jewish aspects of the Shroud, a field of scholarship that is of great importance for establishing its authenticity. Rebecca, we are especially grateful to you for bringing John with you this evening. So let's say a warm welcome. That's very nice of you, Rebecca. I'm pleased to introduce our own Dr. Cheryl White, who is an associate professor of history at Louisiana State University at Shreveport and a presenter for the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud. She has studied the Shroud of Tours in the entirety of her ex uh, academic career with special interest in the Shroud's so-called missing years of 1204 to 1355, including recent research in the Vatican secret archives. She has presented at the International Shroud Conferences and is a frequently requested lecturer on Shroud-related topics. Dr. White co-hosts the international podcast with Father Peter Mangum titled, Who is the Man of the Shroud? She is a member of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, which is pledged to the support of the Holy Land. We are blessed to call her a parishioner here at St. John Berkman's, where she has helped to take our faith formation to a new level. Thank you, Dr. Cheryl. And finally, we're very honored to have with us this evening the administrator of the Diocese of Shreveport who of course is Father Peter Mangum. Father Peter attended the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome where he received degrees in theology and canon law. So of course, in addition to his current diocesan administrator role, Father Peter is the rector of the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's and is also the chaplain of two schools, one of which we're sitting in this evening. He's also the judicial vicar of the Diocese of Shreveport He's a member of numerous ecclesial organizations, including the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud, of which he is the only priest. Father Mangum also belongs to the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, an 800-year-old chivalric order in which he holds the rank of Knight Commander. In April of this year, he was granted access to the Vatican secret archives for further research related to the Shroud, which is the basis of a forthcoming academic paper. Father Mangan is curator of the new Shroud exhibit located here at our cathedral and co-host of the international podcast series, Who is the Man of the Shroud? Father Peter's vision and passion for the Shroud makes all of this special anniversary events possible. And we're fortunate to have him here as our shepherd of the cathedral. Thank you, Father Peter. Thank you. So here's how our panel will work this evening. I want to thank all of you who have submitted questions to us. We'll try to get to most of them, but if we don't get to yours, we'll try to have discussion later on. So what I'll do is I'll address a question to a particular speaker who will then have about three minutes to answer the question. Three minutes, John. Three minutes. Now they tell me. <laughs> Sorry. If anyone goes too long, I have this bell to signal that it's time to stop. So uh, anyway, that's just for fun. So um, we'll address those questions. And why don't we go ahead and start with the first one? Well, first of all. Oh, yes. Before we start anything, that's right. Father Peter, the Good Shepherd, would like to lead us in a prayer this evening. So, Father Peter. I'm, I'm the sheepdog. <laughs> How's that? You're welcome. So uh, I appreciate that, Barry. Um, anyhow, um, first of all, I was not able to be here yesterday. I was in New Orleans 
uh, being diocesan administrator has definitely pulled me away a lot more than I wanted, but I heard it was a great presentation yesterday. Russ Briault, thank you so very much. And if you missed it, uh, you can actually come back online and catch that talk. Plus, he has something very similar already on YouTube. Um, so just look up his name and Shroud and you'll find it. So um, I understand that there are many different people from a number of different states who are here from Florida, from Georgia, from Indiana, from Utah, from Alaska, Texas. Am I missing a state? California. California? California, Georgia, and of course, Colorado. Three of our panelists uh, live there. So thank you all for making the trip to be here. 40 years ago, right now, I mean literally today, 40 years ago today, this was the final full day in which the Shroud of Turin Research Project team had access to the Shroud. They had it for five days, 120 hours. So right now at this time, you know, what were they doing? I mean, we can only imagine. And don't think to yourself, now wait a minute, Father, you know, it's six o'clock, so add seven, so that means it's one o'clock in the morning, so they were all asleep. No, they didn't sleep. I mean, they had, they had different things that they were doing. They staged everything, because if you're given complete total access for 120 hours, you're not gonna lose eight hours a day, 40 hours uh, for that given week. So uh, we were fortunate to be eating dinner and enjoying conversation about what was actually taking place at this point uh, 40 years ago today. And now, 40 years later, here we are in Shreveport, Louisiana, able to celebrate this anniversary. And hopefully, at some point in the future, there will be yet another Shroud of Turin Research Project, too. Uh, I mean, we would like nothing more than that. But also, keep in mind, 40 years ago, Pope almost Saint Paul VI, remember this upcoming Sunday, he will be canonized. So he died on August 6th. I remember where I was. I was in the car with my dad right over there. We're driving from Florida. We heard the news on the, on the um, radio of the station wagon coming back uh, to, to Louisiana of his death. And then, of course, uh, August 26th, then we have Pope John Paul I, who is elected, and 33 days later, he dies. So. In this time period between Pope John Paul I and the conclave, this was a time in which the Shroud of Turin Research Project was supposed to get started. Now, a lot of people might think, well, why didn't they just call it off, stop it? You know, uh, there is no Pope. But remember, the Shroud of Turin was under the uh, ownership of the king, the last king of Italy, Umberto II. He doesn't die until March of 1983. So at this point, uh, everything still was allowed to continue. The conclave is beginning at the same time that this is uh, going on. The conclave, uh, of course, we get Pope St. John Paul II uh, a couple of days after the completion of this particular five-day Shroud of Turin Research Project uh, program. So anyways, all of that, that that's kind of like what was going on 40 years ago at this time. So, and by the way, I was a freshman at Jesuit back then. So, um, I'm supposed to lead us in a prayer. Was that a way of, I just got to talking. Thank you for not ringing the bell. 
All right, let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the grace and blessing of this day, the opportunity to have this Shroud event in our parish and these panelists here with us. And we know that you want to work in our hearts so that we might understand more deeply the love of Jesus who died for us on the cross. Help us not only to understand with our minds, but to love with our hearts. And we know that this we cannot do without the help of the Holy Spirit, so we beg you to pour out upon us today your grace so that we not be overcome or overwhelmed with fear, but let the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ help us to imitate more truly that which is divine love and our call to love you and love one another. And so bless the efforts of this evening and all the conversation as well. May all that we do be for your greater glory and honor. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Now let's really get started. Here we go. Thank you, Father Peter. So our first question this evening is a two-parter. It's addressed to Dr. Jackson and to Barry Schwartz. Yeah, we get copies even, huh? Nice. Nice. Okay. So the question is, when the Sterp team went to Turin in 1978, what did you expect that you were going to find, and what was the biggest surprise that you had from the results? Do you want me to go, John? Okay. I expected to find paint and go home. Serious. I was totally skeptical, had no emotional attachment to the subject matter. The biggest surprise was, I would say, in the first 15 minutes or so when they laid it out, we photographers always carry a little high-power magnifier with us. Uh, I whipped it out and started looking for paint, especially in the image areas. I would say within 15 minutes of just looking at it, I knew it couldn't be a painting. So I guess that was a big surprise because I was a total skeptic. Uh, on the other hand, uh, my expectation was, and I'm, I'm, there's a couple of priests here, so I have to be honest, my real motivation was free trip to Italy. <laughs> it's funny how things have changed in 40 years. I hope that doesn't count against my three minutes. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's one question, so. I, I did it in less. <laughs> I, I think, um, as I hope to uh, discuss tomorrow during our presentation, of the, uh, how the Stirrup uh, project developed, a lot of which many people don't know some of the background details. And maybe, I don't know, some of this you may not know either, Barry, but, but we knew that, or I knew that there was something very unique about the shroud in terms of its image. And this was what propelled the development of stirrup in a very short amount of time. And so when we went over, uh, I was open. I wasn't looking for uh, one thing or another. I, what I thought is we should get the best data that we can acquire. And we had prepared ourselves as best we could to uh, have project or, or data acquisition which could uh, obtain the data that we would have to test various hypotheses, painting like was Barry was talking about, but other ones. So it was more of a shotgun approach, and it was a, a, a trying to acquire as much data as we could get for that, for that purpose. 
and it just if I might add, uh, I just want to add one thing. Uh, the, the preparation that this group went through, remembering my background as a technical photographer, I was overwhelmed that we spent about 17 months in preparation and put it into a test plan that was then submitted to King Umberto and his advisors, which is what they ultimately approved. Just this year, I have published that test plan on shroud.com, so if you want to see some real quality scientific prep, check it out. It's there. Great. All right, thank you. So the next question, Barry, kind of a follow-up. Uh-oh. Let's see. How do, How do we know, we know that the shroud is not some kind of photograph? Well, photography is uh, especially analog photography. And in this group, I guess we can talk about things like film, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Be well, don't laugh. I was talking to a group of 10-year-olds, and a kid put up his hand and said, you keep mentioning film. Is that a USB device? <laughs> Made me feel a little old. Uh, photography and the technology of photography is reasonably well documented, especially at that point in time when it was still the pinnacle of that type of imaging. And, you know, photographs have very specific uh, technology behind them, one of them being uh, some kind of a light-sensitive, typically silver-based emulsion that is what creates or where the image is created. So one of the things that we looked for when we were examining the shroud was silver, and we used both chemistry and uh, mass spectrometry and probably some other tests. X-ray fluorescence. Yeah, yeah, right, and X-ray fluorescence and UV fluorescence. So we used photography, and there's no silver anywhere on the shroud except for one little particle they found near one of the burns believed to be a little droplet of silver, molten silver that came from the fire. But there would be silver across that entire image, more so in the image area than in the background, but we would have found silver everywhere. It would have had to permeate that cloth, and there'd be no way to completely get rid of it. So right off the bat, the technology alone eliminates photography as a process. That and the fact that there are other properties of the image, I'm not going to get into them tonight because I'll put you to sleep, um, but there are other properties of the image that couldn't be created photographically. But that, in a nutshell, is the answer. Yes. I'd like to add to that, too, that the X-ray fluorescence uh, examination of the shroud, shining X-rays onto the, uh, the shroud can cause uh, uh, atoms to fluoresce with a characteristic spectrum. And this is what Barry was just mentioning. Uh, the elements that we found specifically were calcium, iron, and strontium. No silver. No silver. Wow. Terrific. Okay. Thank you both. All right, the next question is for Rebecca, a terrific question. Yeah. Next que um, the question is, where are my glasses? Can you read this for me? <laughs> he's he's going to read it. He's going to read no, the question. No, I'll read it as well. So uh, how do the Jewish burial customs affect what we know about this cloth? Could the cloth be from a first century Jewish burial? I think so. I, I think it's very typical. It said in the Bible that Jesus was buried according to Jewish burial customs, and that Joseph Arimathea was what they call the Chaver Kedisha. I mean, he's the one who arranged that, and he was a distinguished member of the um, Jewish Israeli Sanhedrin. <clears throat> definitely, 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 at the time of Christ, uh, burial customs of the Jews began to change. They went for more simplistic bur uh, burials, clean linen cloths, uh, uh, you know, uh, of linen, no uh, shatnes with the uh, legal combination of linen and wool. 
And you're not supposed to do that. Linen and cotton you're allowed to do, but do you know? But it's a uh, legal combination of linen and the wool within the same fabric that you're going to touch. Now people say, what if I don't touch it? It's impossible not to touch a fabric. It's, it's impossible. But anyway, that's it for another story. But anyway, some people say, well, do you know if, if the combination of linen and wool was permitted in the temple, ancient temple of Jerusalem? And, uh, but you, you could legally, legally use linen and wool, shotness, legal, legal and, um, um, linen and wool in the same fabric uh, for burials because they don't know it anyway, they're dead. But you know, but what about the people arranging the um, burial? They're not allowed to touch it, but anyway, so um, the, the, the burial customs are, have changed uh, after the first century. It used to be much more ornate, do you know, to show how rich you are, things like that. And, and um, it says Maurice Lamb's book, Dr. Lamb's book, he said that the, uh, it's the true democracy is burial. So John knows it, the world, now you, you know it. I want a simple, simple burial. Even though I'm Catholic to be the band, I want a simple burial in linen cloth and what they call takrichim. Takrichim, that means, burial vestments, do you know? And uh, do you know, I've known for the case, you know, with my, <clears throat> after my late mother died, <clears throat> my father, my, my late mother, <laughs> okay, let me put this, let me talk about my father, my late father, he was like the Ayatollah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he looked like the Blues Brothers in the same type, type of hair, he looked like the Blues Brothers, you know? But the, <laughs> But my, but my mother, let's keep away from somebody else, was like Susan Sarandon, liberal. Now, uh, I thought John and I were different, you know. He's like Fred McMurray and I'm like Barbara Streisand. <laughs> but anyway, they were very, very different. So my mother unfortunately died of cancer at a very young age. And about three, four years later, my father remarried. You know, um, and she didn't do that much, but she had cancer about, for about three, four years and died as well. We're all older people. So my father goes to the funeral home and he sees the, how they prepare the takrichim, how they prepare, and turns out he sees her in like a Scarlett O'Hara dress. <laughs> She's looking like Scarlett O'Hara, the Jewish Scarlett O'Hara, and he went into tirades. If he could have stoned the funeral director, he would have. But anyway, it hasn't changed. The attitude has not changed in, um, in thousands of years, in thousands of years. And what, what is, oh, I'm going over three minutes. Okay, read the book. <laughs> right, our next question Thanks for Father for Peter. Your question. So as a Roman Catholic priest who studied the shroud, mm -hmm. what's the most powerful aspect of it that you would want others to know? Well, I mean, for me as a priest, it is an unbelievably great evangelical tool, a, a tool for evangelization. You take it, and so even if there's someone who knows nothing about the crucifixion itself, now you can tell them all about the gospel, because everything that we find in the passion narratives in sacred scripture, you can find on the shroud itself. So you, you, we hear about the, the, the scourging at the pillar. You see all the scourging that would have taken place. Um, evident on the image itself, the, the crowning of the thorns, the, the, the nail uh, 
wounds, the, the wound in the side. So everything you, you can teach, you can tell people, you can inspire. So those people who already know about the, the death of our Lord, well, it, they're all the more further convinced. Then you can also explain by means of this image how it is that Jesus is the only person to have suffered crucifixion and scourging and a crowning of thorns. All of this so very unique and it's there and it's, it, it completely totally reflects what we have in sacred scripture. And this is for anyone, any Christian, anyone who's reading the, the, the same uh, passion narratives. Um, I can't help but, but think, you know, in this day and age, we are all, I mean, when we text each other, some of you texting me, you know, what, what do you text me? You text me images. You don't even text words anymore. We have all these emoticons, right? So um, here, all of a sudden, the Lord, by means of a 14 and a half foot linen strip, is giving us an image here is, instead of just all these words that we have in sacred scripture, here it is. Take a look. And if we really look with an open mind, an open heart, and combine that with what we know in sacred scripture, hopefully it, it affirms what we, what we believe. Someone on the web um, Facebook page uh, posed the question, do we really need this to be true in order to have faith? And if you saw my response, no. I mean, I, I believe that Jesus Christ suffered, died, rose from the dead, even before I knew about a shroud of Turin. So for me and for most people here in this room, we don't need a shroud to help uh, convince us that uh, everything that we believe about our Lord as, as we find in sacred scripture is true. Uh, I would dare say though that it is a, it, opens the door for a number of people who may not have faith or very strong faith to be able to say, now wait a minute, especially people who are at all um, have faith, but maybe even more so reason, because we don't think that the two are in, in contradiction here. Remember, Pope St. John Paul II says that, that these two, faith and reason, are, are like two wings that help the soul fly to heaven. To, you know, to fly to God. So we, we, we need them both. And so as a person of faith, but also a person who has a mind, a brain, can reason, um, I, I'm, I personally am very intrigued by everything else that we find in it. Um, all, all the scholarship that has gone into um, uh, researching uh, everything about the pollen, the dirt, um, th th that really points towards its authenticity. But, okay, that's a long way of saying it's a great evangelical tool. It's a tool of evangelization, and, um, and the popes have spoken about it as a, as a great icon of our faith, but an icon in the sense of that which is a, truly a relic, um, uh, the blood of the dead man of the shroud that speaks to us of life. So... Period. Thank you, Father Peter. Kind of an important symbol in these rather challenging times for our church as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Great. Right, Perfect. Thank you. I've got kind of a uh, good technical one, so we'll give this to Dr. Jackson. Oh, Great. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, the carbon-14 data testing shows that the shroud can be no older than 1260. How do you answer that? 
Well, thanks, everybody, for coming. I hope you enjoyed the... Uh... <laughs> no, actually, um, the carbon-14 is a physics test. Uh, my PhD is in physics, so this ought to be my test. And normally it, it, it would be because I understand the principles upon which carbon-14 rests. But we have to understand that any scientific measurement, and this is a scientific measurement, uh, is based upon certain assumptions about the uh, test or that you're going to involve this in. Now, I think of carbon-14 as a as a measurement, so I would I would like to say that it's a it's a it's a measurement and measurement of what? It's measurement of two types of of carbon. There's actually three, but two types of carbon that are found in the in the sample. Uh, these are called isotopes. It's like uh, if you want to think of ice cream. Uh, you might have strawberry ice cream and, and, and vanilla ice cream. Uh, they're different flavors, but they're both ice cream. Carbon-14 and carbon-12 are chemically carbon, but they are isotopically uh, different flavors, if you will, of carbon. One uh, form, carbon-14, uh, goes away because it's radioactive. It has too many neutrons in it. So what, um, and, and carbon-12 st is stable, so what you want to do is measure the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12, and if you know, or if you think you know, what that ratio was initially in the sample, then as time goes on, that ratio changes. We know how fast it changes, and bingo, the calculation is something that you could give to a high school student, and they could actually come up with the uh, uh, with the measurement or the, or the or the interpretation, I mean, of, sorry, of the uh, result. The dating par part of this is the interpretation that you give to that ratio. Now, uh, you have to assume that nothing has intervened on the sample, like a, a contamination of some kind, that could upset uh, that ratio. Because if if that if if that happens, then you apply your dating equation, and you're going to get the wrong result. We say in science, garbage in, garbage out. In the case of carbon-14, uh, we're looking at a um, result that has um, a, um, a result that is many standard deviations against the uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of a test that probabilistically is plus or minus 50 years or so. So 14th century Take that, uh, divide that by 50 years, and you got like 28 standard deviations. So that's a big deal. It's not you're not going to explain that with standard contamination, but you could explain it if there was a, a contamination that comes on the shroud that is highly enriched in radiocarbon. And it turns out that one that thing that we're interested in, and then I'll finish and let somebody else have a, uh, another question, but. Uh, we're very interested in carbon monoxide because it's known by different uh, 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 scientists, physicists, published data that carbon monoxide is naturally highly enriched in radiocarbon, and that's something that's in the air. The shroud has been exposed to the air, and if that carbon from carbon monoxide, <coughs> if there's a pathway, whether it's physical, chemical, or even biological, 
to get into the shroud as a contaminant at the 2% level, you can make a first century shroud look like 14th century. And uh, I have to emphasize that the carbon, uh, carbon monoxide is really heavily enriched uh, to make that happen at the 2% contamination level. And we think that's a very attractive uh, thing to look at. We are <coughs> looking at that theoretically, and we want to look at it experimentally. Of course, we need some funding to help us uh, accomplish those that kind of research, but that's where our mind is. But that's not the only solution here that we we have to it. I could talk more about it, but I think we should let others have sure. yeah. their turn, too. Could I, could I add something to that real quickly? Um, there's plenty of historical evidence showing that the shroud existed well before 1260. So that's the simple answer, because I'm not a physicist. John is. <laughs> but the simple answer is, no, there's plenty of data that shows this cloth existed well before 1260. Yes, and, and there's, uh, there's experimental data that um, was acquired even in our stirrup expedition that we've exploited. And I'm convinced, uh, and our, my colleagues, uh, Rebecca and others, uh, were convinced that that makes a very compelling case for what Barry just said, that the, the linen of the shroud uh, has existed historically and archaeologically before the radiocarbon date says that the cloth even existed. Right. So, right. so the next, so the question is, in my mind, yeah, I think the carbon 14 is is not giving us the right result. But the question is then, why is it not giving us that result? And that's where the physics questions come in. Sure. Great. All right. Terrific answer. Thanks both. All right, Dr. Cheryl White. Yes. You're on, Cheryl. I'm up. I'm up. Okay. You're up. Okay, so this question, some people have suggested that the man of the shroud is too tall to be a first century Jew. What's the answer to that? It's a great question for a historian because I know the average height of first century Jews. Okay. Um, <laughs> somebody, somebody's listening to the podcast because this is actually a question that, that Father Peter and I got and actually did a podcast that directed to this particular question. Usually people who ask this, and apparently it's a very common thing, uh, are acting under the assumption that this is a medieval cloth. Uh, that's usually sort of, I think, the, the perspective that one brings to this question because we know it enters the uh, undisputed documented historical record in 1355. So if we want to suggest that somehow the man of the shroud at five foot 10 inches tall is too tall to be a first century Jew, we're making some assumptions, like we know the average height of a first century Jew. We do have skeletal remains from first century Palestine that show us that men were all sorts of heights. Yeah, and remember that, that there is an average, and if you have an average, then there are men that are gonna be above average, and there are men that are gonna be below that average. So five foot 10 inches tall, I can't tell you whether or not that is too tall to be a first century Jew, but I can tell you I know even better that it's too tall to be a medieval European. Hmm. Hmm. I just uh, want to interrupt. Sure, I, back I want, As usual, I just want to interrupt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, as I said, I'm 100% Jewish, and my grandfather, my late grandfather, was exactly 5'10". I mean, he looks like the Hills Brothers coffee commercial. I mean, the big, tall... Semitic-looking man, five ten, and Yeshiva University. I don't know who. Uh, I went to Yeshiva University High School. They are known for uh, what do you call basketball players. 
They are, no, they are tall. They are tall. Now, how is that? Because the Jews, and then that's part of what I'll talk about tomorrow, are very mixed with black Africans who went up with them in, in, during the Sinai, um, in the Sinai from Egypt. So they are tall. You don't see that many short blacks. But anyway, so the Jews are very mixed with blacks. So that rubbed off. So Jews are all the Semitic people are the tallest people. I stopped growing, I'm almost 5'7". I stopped growing at the age of 12, you know, and I'm 5'7". So, and this is both in men and women. By the way, I, I tried out for my basketball team. I didn't make it. I, I could give you one piece of, I could offer one piece of data, first century. Uh, there was a, an archeological dig of about 10 skeletons in a mass grave Right. This is first century. Uh, from the skeletal analyses, uh, what I remember, the, day, the, the range, and you're talking about a range. Right, an average. That it, it, it varied from five, about five, two and a half to five, eleven and a half. Is I think the five, eleven and a half, I remember for sure. The, mm -hmm. the, the lower one is about in that range, five, two and a half, five, three. And um, so the man of the shroud from measurements my canonical number has always been five ten and a half. So he, according to that uh, statistical sample set from that from that archaeological dig, the man of the shroud would have been on the tall side, as you said, right? Uh, but not unreasonably tall, because there was one person one inch taller than them. Right. I, I I would think that the disciples who wrote the Gospels had Jesus been of an extraordinary height would have probably made note of that somewhere. And we have no description, which implies, at least in my mind, that he wasn't anything too tall or too short. Right, and, and I, I will go back and reiterate something that I said about um, medieval Europe, which because that's a field I'm much more familiar with. And I can tell you that we know a lot more about medieval European remains, skeletal remains that have been excavated in archeological <clears throat> digs at battlefields across Europe. and the average height of the medieval European is going to be lower than an ancient Jew, a first century Jew. So as I said, I believe it far more likely that this man would be an ancient Jew over a medieval European. He is too tall to be a medieval European of 1355. And there was an anthropometric study done by yes. a few researchers, uh, Manuela Marinelli and Giulio Fanti, uh, where they took the measurements of the shroud and compared them to the anthropological tables that anthropologists use for determining uh, race and culture. Amazingly, they determined the man of the shroud is Semitic. What a surprise. <laughs> uh, Russ, how about one for you? So Russ, the forensic evidence on the shroud points to crucifixion. Do we know that that is the cause of death? I think it's pretty clear for anyone who was here last night, um, that you you have a you have a pattern of blood stains on the shroud that some occurred prior to death, uh, such as the scourging, the crown of thorns, uh, uh, nail wounds in the wrist and the feet, but then there is the wound in the side, which scripturally we know occurred after death, 
And in that blood stain on the shroud, it shows the clear separation of blood and blood serum. That's only going to happen if the blood is no longer circulating. So there would be, because once the blood is no longer circulating, the, the red blood cells separate from the, uh, from the, from the clear plasma. And so, and so when the spear came in, out flowed blood. And what John said appeared to be like water but was probably actual, actually blood, uh, blood serum or blood plasma. So that was that was clearly post-mortem blood flow. Uh, so I don't think there's any question that, that, the, that the crucifixion was the, uh, was the cause of death. Great. Good. Very good. All right, Barry, a question for you. So the question, how do you answer the critics who say that the image can be recreated by other methods that were available in the Middle Ages? Real simple answer. Show me one. <laughs> I have looked at every attempt to duplicate the image on the shroud for 40 years. Uh, you can make something that looks like the shroud. After all, my photographs are all over the planet, so you can use those as a, a basis, Carlos Kelly did. Um, and you can make something that looks like the shroud. But remember what our team did? We characterized what was on that cloth. We documented it scientifically. And if you're going to tell me you've created a mechanism that matches and duplicates what's on the shroud, then what you have to do is make one, not just of the face, but of the full ventral and dorsal image, and let us compare it chemically and physically to the shroud. Nobody's even come close. So the answer is you can make any claim you want to, but the scientific evidence says nobody's ever come close. Can I make another comment to that, just to add to what Barry says? Uh, I've been impressed that after estimating over a couple, 2,000 talks on the Shroud, uh, I have not had anybody in any audience come up and say, oh, yeah, we, um, we have a... Uh, an image of our great grandfather on the on a bed sheet or or something of that nature. <laughs> if you think about it, that's got to be important, I think, because if the, if this image was made naturally, then it would have to follow from laws of physics and chemistry that whenever the circumstances of the burial of this man, on the man of the shroud occurred, then the laws of physics and chemistry would, would have to create an image. That would not be optional. And when you think about all the, the, the shroud burials, I mean, Rebecca can tell you a lot about that. It's also not in, in the Jewish world either. There's also the Islamic world they, that does it do too. So, and nobody is, is ever saying that there's an image like the shroud or, any, or even, I mean, something that you could call an image formed. And as I say, nobody's ever brought that to my knowledge. So it's not that I've, we've gone out and done tests or studies on burial, looking for burial images. But I don't think that's too bad a thing because we've, every one of you uh, have your own experiences. And I would dare say that nobody here is going to be able to say, oh, yeah, we have a, in our family or our knowledge an image like the shroud formed by somebody else. I've just, after 2,000 talks, that's the way it, it, I've seen it. So something must be, be else be behind this image. 
Well, there's another point also is that uh, typically when a shroud is wrapped around the body, the body decays, the shroud, which is also organic, decays. So we don't have any intact shrouds. Got to remember that this man was separated from that piece of cloth in about 36 hours. So, you know, in a sense, maybe there's some other natural images formed, but we'll never know that because when somebody's buried, the, both the, the body and the shroud will decay. So we don't have any uh, evidence that there's ever been any images. So I'm not excluding it as a possibility, but it's a very slim one, I think. Great. Bravo. So Dr. Jackson, kind of a follow-up. So the question is, why are there no side images visible on the shroud? Well, how, uh, how many hours do we have here on this, to answer this question? Three minutes. Three minutes. Three minutes. Yeah, I, that's what I was afraid of. Um, that's something that is, 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 a, is, a, is important. Now, I spent, in the 1980s, about two years of my life worrying about this question. And there were some things about the shroud image that we have to understand. That it's true there are no side images. There's also no images between the two heads, the frontal and dorsal either. There, there's a water stain in there, but don't confuse that with, a, with, a, with an image. Now, we have, uh, and uh, Russ, I think you brought this up yesterday, but you have uh, a blood flow coming on the forearm. It goes down, and then it is explained by coming off and pooling at the bottom of the arm so that when the cloth rolls out, you can see that, that, that end of that blood. Now, what's interesting in this question is that if you look where... The, where that blood clot is on the shroud that comes off, there's no image there. That is a place where you know there should have been a side image formed because the blood clot, to get that blood transferred to the cloth, the cloth, at least at that location, had to be in contact with the body. Yet there's no body image there. So there, there really is uh, uh, a strong argument that if the cloth is in touch, in contact with the body on the sides, no image will be formed. I've thought about that a lot, and I think that the image uh, mapping uh, is, is from the, the information mapping from the body to the cloth is in a vertical direction. Therefore, on the sides, that that mapping would be parallel. So, there, so according to that rule of thumb, there would be no image form. But why should it be vertical? And so I worried, worried about that some more for another several years after that. And I think that gravity was, is, is an integral part of making this image for that reason. That, that, in other words, if you, if you had the, the, the man of the shroud wrapped in, a, in, in, a, in the shroud, in the, in the space station, the ISS, where there's no gravity, everything else being the same, I don't think the shroud image would have been formed. Gravity was integrally a part of this because gravity gives us the verticality. I mean, how does, how does the image formation mechanism know which way it has to act with, in, with this verticality? Gravity can do that for you. So I think gravity has to be part of that. And... Um, I don't know, I could give, offer my hypothesis, but uh, if you want, but. 
Well, I was going to say that this, this is, um, I'm violating protocol here, but um, by asking you a follow-up question, mm -hmm. but could you explain real quickly what, to people what you believe the hypothesis is about, about the, the materially transparent body? Okay. Well, my logic is, and you can see this on our website, uh, our website is kind of like Barry's, but not, it's a little bit longer than his, because he, he got there first. Uh, <laughs> Shroudofturin.com. Um, he's shrouded.com. Um, it was available. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, In 1995. Well, anyway. Um, we're happy with shroudofturin.com too, Gary. I want you to know. <laughs> but uh, the hypothesis that I think can explain this, and, and there's a paper that argues this whole thing. Uh, it's on the on that on that website. You can read it for yourself. Data files. You just go to data files and you can read it. It's there. You can download it, and you see the scientific logic. But the logic was was what I just said. So I think. Uh, trying to involve gravity, that I, I, I finally brought myself to think that I have to uh, give a radical idea for image formation. And it took me a number of years before I even suggested it to myself, because there were some problems I had with it. But anyway, the idea is the cloth is around the body. Uh, the body becomes radiant with light, volumetrically surface and, and inside. Meanwhile, the cloth that's above it, the top part of the cloth, then is able to, for some reason, due to a, a transparent mechanical transparency of this body in conjunction with the radiation, it's able to fall vertically downwards under gravity. There's your gravity. And then the cloth s settles uh, through this radiant body and what we call an image on the shroud, then in my mind, according to that hypothesis, is it's basically a, a time integration at each point on the cloth of the interaction, the local interaction of the cloth to the local radiation uh, that it encounters during this event. And I think that this is very quick. It was not, it wasn't, you know, like snapping your fingers, but I think it, Otherwise, you'd have pressure problems with the atmosphere. But I think it's something that uh, by the time the image fell about almost four centimeters, because that's the fall off of, of the shroud correlation function with image intensity and cloth body distance, this event was over. And so that's what I think. Thank cool. you. Thank Great. you. Great. Great. Thanks to you both. So. Sure, go ahead. I'd just like to ask you your hypothesis that you're talking about. Are you saying then that the body was laid flat on its back? Yes. I think, I think the body was laid flat on, on its back, and it was just wrapped the way, like, the, way the shroud uh, 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 arranges itself. And it's, and it's easy to show that in that condition, condition the blood contact regions and the, and, the, and the intense parts or the natural parts of where the cloth would contact the body are the most intense parts of the, of the images as well. All that is easy to do. If I had our model of, that was made from a CRT scan of a real person in the attitude of the shroud, in the shroud it's easy to show that. And you can put the cloth on it and 
20 seconds, and it's easy to show that, but that's, that is what I'm saying. Okay. Good, good, thank you. All right, one more follow-up. Shouldn't there be a differential between the ventral and dorsal <coughs> because of the increased heat generated by gamma radiation? Uh, reflecting from the surface that's well, well, I never, yeah, I never said this is gamma radiation, first of all, and number two, um, I never said it was heat either. Right. But, but it was, but pardon me. It's some, sort of, <coughs> some, sort of, some sort of energy, which is going to, the energy is going to be trapped below, and it's going to be reflecting from the surface that the, that the body is lying, so there should be some effect. To, uh, you can see a difference between the dorsal and ventral. Well, well, I th regardless of what the uh, mech what the actual physics of the uh, the radiation, there's, lo there's a lot of there's a lot of candidates. I have my own candidate, but it's um, but you're right that you you would you ought to have a difference between the frontal image and the dorsal image because. Uh, the frontal image, according to my hypothesis, is, a, is formed by a dynamic event, a, a movement. But the bottom part of the, which I, and I think this is the essence of your question anyway, the, the cloth and body on the dorsal side is static. So you have a dynamic on the front uh, and, a, and a static on the bottom, and you ought to see that. And I, and I, I think we do. The, the frontal image uh, has a demonstrable 3D correlation with image intensity and cloth body distance. But on the dorsal side, uh, uh, I think uh, we can argue that it's more like a direct contact image. The, the dorsal image does not have, have this 3D correlation that the front image has, which I think actually speaks to uh, uh, the uh, probable or possible uh, validity of this hypothesis that I'm, su I'm suggesting. Okay, thank you. Got a few more questions here. Everybody will be at the parish hall after we're done with the panel discussion. So, okay. Russ, I've got one here that was prepared especially for you. Just for me. It's a good forensic question, and it asks, what future forensic evidence would you like to be able to add to your CSI Jerusalem talk that we don't know with certainty yet? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I kind of dovetailing on, on what John was talking about, you know, one of the um, pieces of research that has come out in the past uh, six, seven years was, it was experiments done in, in, um, in Europe uh, using an ultraviolet eczema laser. Uh, determining that a uh, 40 nanosecond burst on a UV laser achieves the very same depth and coloration that we see on the shroud. And, you know, I'm not sure it's the same mechanism that John is talking about, but if you saw my presentation, you know, I'm, I, I don't go too far into the physics because I'm not a physicist, but certainly I believe that light is involved in the formation of the shroud image because that would perfectly correlate with scripture. Uh, as you know, you know, when you're trying to figure out what happened to Jesus in the tomb, there were no eyewitnesses. So you have to piece it together through inference, through, through looking at other verses of scripture. And you have, the, you have the angel that appeared like lightning. You have Jesus appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration as a being of light. You have his appearance to Saul in a blinding flash of light. 
right. So, you know, I would love to see more forensics in terms of in terms of understanding, you know, you know, and I don't know that we can get a better understanding of what happened to Jesus in the tomb, but I know that it's light. And whether the whether the as 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 John said that the body became mechanically transparent, became a volume of light, and the image occurred as the as the as the cloth was was collapsing through this through this body that had just come from solid mass to solid light. That would be pretty cool. And it was um, <laughs> so um, the um, so I mean these are the um, so I mean you know the the past. 50 years, what we focused on is, is not just the medical forensics, but also the forensics is what caused this image and could it be the resurrection itself? And um, I mean, I'm not sure that we'll get there, but I'm sure we can get closer with, with, with more modern scientific uh, um, applications. Absolutely. Good. The light of truth, right? Yeah. All right. right. Uh, Thanks. Can I like, I'd like to sure. say, say one thing? Or... Yeah, I think when you're just following up on a couple of things that uh, Russ said, that the hypothesis that I'm, ex I'm proposing is a radical idea, uh, obviously. But the idea of the resurrection, which is what Christianity has been saying to the world for 2,000 years, is a radical idea, too. <laughs> so if the shroud is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus, from a Christian point of view, it's got to be the resurrection cloth as well. And it doesn't take then a lot, lot of rocket science to come together and say, maybe the body image is the response of the shroud, if authentic, to what Christianity has uh, been saying is the, is the resurrection event. Uh, that was in the Easter tomb. The other thing I wanted to say was about these laser uh, uh, experiments, uh, doing this with an excimer laser. Uh, uh, we did experiments of excimer lasers on cloth about 25 years ago using an excimer krypton fluoride laser. These things have, as you point out, very short uh, 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 pulses on the order of nanoseconds. That's the bil a billionth of a second. Uh, but they're also short wavelength into the ultraviolet. They're ultraviolet lasers. Um, so the question is, what do you see? Well, you can use these excimers to put an image on the surface of the cloth. But is it, on, in the excimer laser case, is it because it's a short wavelength, or is it, a sh or is it because of the very short duration pulse? And see, I, I think that's part of the problem by using the, the excimer laser to uh, uh, to, to look at the, the, the superficial nature of this image, because you've got the confluence of these two uh, parameters, short pulse time, short wavelength. What you want to do is separate those, and you can do that by taking very low intensity uh, ultraviolet light, and you can put you can put uh, discolorations on the surface, like you see, without uh, damaging uh, like cell walls and things of that nature to the cloth. Hmm. However, if you ignite a, a laser airborne an air plasma, and you can do that with an excimer laser, uh, these things 
will give momentary plasmas that are hot, momentarily hotter than the surface of the sun. And they, let, they have a loud bang when they go off. We've done it. And, uh, but, they, but they create a very, very short wavelength vacuum ultraviolet radiation, which uh, literally photo bleaches the cloth below, which is important. And also, they will, um, uh, because of the high pressure plasma shock, it actually crushes the, the fibers below, and you can actually see that. So these experiments are, I mean, it's not, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're, uh, they, they've got value, but we, it's very easy in those cases to, for, and I'm, I'm not, I know that's not your experiment, you're just quoting what somebody else, the Italians did, but, uh, but it's... Uh, well, plus, I like lasers. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I for lasers are They're cool. cool, aren't they? Yeah. Good. All right. Thank you. All. Thank you both. All right. So two more questions, and they're really for the entire group. Kind of a toss-up question, uh, and it personalizes it a little bit, but what is the most important piece of evidence for you that points to the Shroud's authenticity? I think the Jewish aspects of the Shroud. The um, physical stance of the man of the shroud, and that's one, and everything else that I've learned over the past um, 50 years. Uh, most important piece of evidence, how about an image on a piece of cloth that modern science can neither explain nor duplicate? Right. I'm a photographer. What do you expect me to say? <laughs> and an, uh, an image that is on the very, very top fibrils of one fiber, you know, you know, there are like 200 little fibrils to each little fiber, and it's absolutely perfectly the same across the 14 and a half feet uh, uh, cloth, and I mean, if you were just to scratch just a little bit of it off, I mean, it, it, would, it would be gone. So how on earth did something like this with no directionality on it get placed onto this image? Um, pretty unbelievable. Well, and as a historian, I can say that, for me, obviously, that's going to be my frame of reference. And um, if this enters the historical record in 1355, and we have absolutely no other artwork like this, there's no record of anything else like this that's anatomically perfect, forensically accurate to the 14th century, to me, that's very compelling because... You know, some of you have heard me say this, when the carbon-14 dating results came out in 1988, I was in graduate school, and I was absolutely baffled because as a student in medieval European history, I want to know who this 14th century artist is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, um, I would say that um, I, I would first would have said what you have said, but since you've already said it, my number two point would be um, the photo negativity of the shroud. The fact that the fact that the image has so much more clarity, has so much more information in the photo negative, and the fact that photography wasn't invented until 1830, and yet we have a clear history back to at least the mid 1300s in, in when it first appeared in France. Um, so clearly, if we allege that the, I, I always like to say that there's always an either or proposition and that either the Shroud of Turin is the authentic borough Shroud of Jesus or it's not. 
And if it's not, well, then what is it? Well, then it must be the work of an artist. And if that's the, the case, well, then there must be some trace of paint, ink, dye, pigmentation, stain. There must be some substances on the cloth to account for the image, yet there's not. And so, and so, so, so this photonegativity that was, if we assume that this is the work of some medieval artist, then it was strictly an accidental byproduct. He had no clue that this, that this photonegative, that, that this photonegative image existed, and we just suddenly revealed and discovered in 1898. And to me, I think this is rather preposterous. And it's um, so to to think that this photonegative image is just a mere accidental byproduct of of some alleged uh, forgery or some attempt to. So I like to say, you know, either the shroud of Turin is the is either the greatest hoax ever perpetrated, or it is a deliberate and purposeful sign from God. And there's an organization called signfromgod.org, which has that same yeah, exact yeah. mission statement. And Myra Adams, the head of it, is right, oh, right, right there. Raise your hand, Myra. So the, um, the, um, so, uh, that's what I think. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a lot more, but, but, you know, but then I would say it would be the, what, what, uh, it would be the accumulation of all of the data that we have, uh, that it's not just one thing or another, it's the accumulation of everything that, that makes it so um, implausible to me that it could be the work of some, you know, medieval artist. Well, and, and then you take this, you, you take this image and you put it under that VP8 analyzer, as uh, Dr. John Jackson did, 1976, which was what really got the whole uh, Shroud of Turin research project going. Uh, and then you see all the 3D qualities <laughs> in it. Somehow, this image contains all this information that, that produces a, a 3D image that no other image on this planet will produce. So that, that's another uh, pretty right. unbelievable. I, I, I just want to sort of share something that's sort of on this topic, but a little maybe off. Um, I've been doing this for 40 years. Uh, most of you know I'm Jewish, so I didn't have a horse in this race. I didn't have an emotional attachment. Obviously, I was skeptical. Um, and I've, for years, have been lecturing and talking to people. Everybody looks to the shroud to answer our questions. And I've come to believe that the shroud isn't there to answer our questions, but to make us ask the questions. Yes. Yeah, I would also add, to, to, to build off of what Barry just said, to me, um, the objects of the, of the material world, objects of the physical world, artifacts, historical artifacts, always give up their mysteries. I mean, you, you put enough scrutiny to something and you're going to get to the answer. And it, this is the exact opposite of that. The more scrutiny and the more, the more this is subjected to investigation, the more questions we have, which clearly to me points to not a natural origin, but a supernatural one. Mm -hmm. Philosophically, and that's how you have to look at yeah. it. I have like to share one more comment. Sure, Russ. That, um, you know, I, I, I lecture, as Barry does, in, 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 in John and Rebecca, to uh, I, churches of all, all denominations. And 
Um, you know, in particular, you know, my my evangelical friends might say, well, you know, you know, would, you know, God wouldn't do it this way. You know, it has to be by faith and not by sight. And um, and I'm saying, you know, or, or or as we were talking in the car earlier, someone might say that I don't need the shroud for my faith. And my response is, that's great. That's great that you don't need the shroud for your faith. But that doesn't mean it wasn't meant for somebody else. And I believe that, you, you know the old expression that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? I believe that the shroud leads you right up to the water's edge, but it's not a replacement for faith. It's not a substitute, because at the end of the day, we don't have the DNA of Jesus to make a match. We can't prove it absolutely that this is, in fact, the birth shroud of Jesus. So it's always, it's never going to be a replacement for faith, but I think the shroud takes you right up to the water's edge, and it's up to you as to whether you're going to drink, you know, dip down and, and drink that water for yourself or take that step of yep. faith. And that's what I think the shroud is all about. That's why I think it exists. That's why I think we have it. Amen. Amen. Um, sure. I guess um, I can't let myself off my own hook, right? Because no. <laughs> I didn't I haven't answered this question yet, so I guess I, okay. I probably should. So this is a question about authenticity. The shroud's authenticity. Well, obviously, authenticity means the authentic burial cloth of Jesus. Now, how, how do we actually handle that? Now, we should ask ourselves, how do we know about Jesus at all? We know about Jesus only because of Christianity, period. If there, if there was nobody in the first century that thought enough about Jesus and what had happened surrounding him at that time, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus. We wouldn't be here talking about it. All the churches in the world would not be here. Uh, it's, it's Christianity that has told us about that Jesus even existed. Otherwise, he'd go down as an, an unnamed person amongst, amongst the many other thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of poor souls who died the way he did by crucifixion. So that's the first point. So I guess what I would do to answer this question is then you, you've got to look into Christianity. All too often, many people try to stand outside of Christianity and try to answer these questions. And I think th that's, that's illogical because of what I just said. So what you have to do is you have to look is you have to be willing to, look, to to venture inside of Christianity and see what did Christianity think about Jesus and 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 moreover is there anything that Christianity has passed on to us uh, in its uh, its scriptures its liturgies its its its, its religious art whatever that can help us analyze or evaluate the shroud. And that's where my mind has been going for the last X number of years, because I think that's the way you have to do it. So what I think is we should look in at what Christianity has given to us about Jesus. And remember, there's no radiocarbon date on Christianity the last time I checked. <laughs> so uh, we have our scriptures. And remember, what Christianity's purpose is, isn't to give us scientific information about Jesus. Its purpose is to give us that which 
is necessary for our salvation. And it's not going to tell you, for example, we talked about how tall is Jesus. Well, the scriptures don't tell us that. There's nothing in scripture that tells how high, tall Jesus is. It doesn't even tell us whether he had a beard, long hair, but somehow we know that. Now, we also have something that's very intriguing to me, and this is also with my wife, Rebecca, that uh, we have our liturgy. Now, I'm talking from the point of view of, 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 of uh, as, a, as a Roman Catholic, but all these other liturgical rites throughout the world, Orthodox rites, the Eastern rites, they all have something in common when they celebrate the equivalent of the Mass, or Divine Liturgy as it's called in the East. They celebrate, and they have to celebrate this on the, uh, a liturgical cloth, which is understood in all these different traditions as the burial cloth of Jesus. And that's what we're talking about, right? So why is this? And, and so Rebecca and I, be, before we were married almost 26 years ago, we started asking ourselves that question. And Rebecca says, well, you know, the, knowing, re realizing that the Mass is, uh, is based upon par, uh, the, the tradition of the, of the Passover, and the, and the la, and, i.e. the Last Supper, then um, realizing that, uh, Rebecca says, well, the Jews also have to celebrate Passover on a cloth. It has to be there because, if I can say what she would say, is that it's there as a buffer between leavening and non-leavening. It's got to be there. So now we have commonalities here between Judaism, Christianity, and the celebration of the Last Supper, which we, in, in, in the, as, as, as a Catholic, which we are, is, is the Mass. But it's being celebrated on the, liturgically and symbolically on the burial cloth of Jesus. Why is that? And, and the other part of it was bothered us was if the Mass is to be both uh, a memory of, of uh, the passion death of our Lord and the resurrection, I, on one hand, it's also is understood liturgically, and, and you can easily demonstrate this, it, it's also a memory of the Last Supper. But think about it. Why does the church universally have a mandatory requirement to celebrate a memory of the Last Supper on a burial cloth? Just think about that. At the time of the Last Supper, there was no such thing as a burial cloth of Jesus because he, that's going to happen in the future. So why did the early church, which apparently gives us this tradition uh, of, this, of this cloth, uh, feel it was okay to put this, these two together, and um, these two traditions together? And Rebecca and I proposed uh, a, uh, a hypothesis, another hypothesis, that if the, the answer that could explain that is because that early church, it thought that, and I knew, that this cloth upon, that upon which they had to have been celebrating the initial Eucharists, they understood that this was not only the burial cloth of Jesus, but it was also the, a tablecloth, of a Passover tablecloth of the Last Supper. And, they, and therefore, they didn't have any problem giving us both two dual traditions on one cloth. They didn't, there's not dual tradition in two cloths, it's dual traditions in one cloth. And therefore, we propose the idea, the hypothesis, it's a hypothesis, 
that, this, that the Shroud of Turin, before it was the burial cloth of Jesus, had been used the night before as a uh, Passover tablecloth of the Last Supper, which makes a lot of sense when you look at the ornate herringbone twill pattern, which is not representative of any burial cloths that are extant from, uh, uh, from Israel. So to me, that's seeing correlations like this that come unexpectedly, but yet I think dovetail is for me, when compares to what Christianity gives us, is uh, uh, in my most important evidence for authenticity, which I believe in. Thanks to all of you. I think you'll agree it's a superstar panel, right? Yeah. Dare I say okay. a supernatural panel? to say thanks to a couple of other groups. There are some lovely ladies at the back of the room who are responsible for preparing and serving our meal this evening. Thanks to them. Red River Radio was kind enough to join us this evening. Thank you, gentlemen. We are not done this evening. We would invite you to join us at the parish hall, just across the hall and outside the doors, where there are exhibits, there are shroud materials available for your purchase. You can interact with our panel group when you're there. And our great weekend is not done. Don't forget that tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. we have the talk from Dr. John and Rebecca Jackson. It begins at 9 a.m. in that very parish hall. And finally, if you enjoy talks like this, uh, presentations like this, you'll have an opportunity to donate to that. We thank you for your generosity. May God bless you all and keep you safe in your travels. On to the parish hall.